David. Mm-hmm. I've been wondering something. What? Well, I've been wondering a lot of things. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well okay. What type of cookbook do you like? I mean, not just you use that works for you, but what right. are the types of cookbooks that you gravitate towards? Oh, gosh. Well, as you can see here, I've got ceiling to floor three bookcases full of cookbooks. But which ones do you reach for again and again? And again, it really is related to personality for me. And I don't mean personality in the sense of celebrity. I don't mean that. But books that have personality, books that are person-centric or people-centric, I'm not a big fan of one of those compendiums that have 400 or 500 recipes. Mm -hmm. They just don't interest me. And I'll cook from them or if I need it for research or for work. But I really am drawn to books that opens up the door to someone's world, Mm -hmm. even if it's their personal world in their kitchen or a world to a culture or a world to a group of people. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that I'm fascinated by. And I have the standard that a great cookbook is one that I can bring to bed and bring to the kitchen. (laughs) If that cookbook author can stand both of those tests, then they're a good cookbook author and I like the book, meaning that I can lie in bed and read. And I'm just as satisfied there reading the cookbook as I am satisfied cooking from the cookbook. That's the most important thing for me. That surprises me. Really, why? Why does that surprise you? Well, because you're so technically precise Mm -hmm. about things. I guess I would have thought that you preferred cookbooks that were very matter-of-fact and almost dictatorial Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. in telling you exactly what to do to get the most perfect results. And those are great books, but they're not the books that I covet. They're Mm -hmm. books that I go to to be precise and exact, but the ones that will stay with me and have stayed with me for decades, those aren't the ones. Mm -hmm. I take two or three recipes out of those, photocopy them or scan them, but they're not the ones that I keep for a long time. What about you? Surprisingly similar to you, ones where you feel as though you know the author or you're getting to know them Mm -hmm. and you're getting a glimpse, even just in the way they phrase things. Mm -hmm. So like Sarah Foster decades ago had some cookbooks Nigel Slater the British yes. cookbook uh, with his diaries yeah. you know where they intersperse life mm-hmm. with cooking and things get a little messy yeah. they're not yeah. always perfect and yeah. you just kind of zig and you zag and you deal with what shows up and it still works out lovely in fact usually lovelier than you could have orchestrated yourself Yeah. Right. so the people who kind of can roll with that and encourage that and I think our guest today is one of my favorite people who accomplished that really well. I agree with you. And our guest today, she ticks off all those boxes. Julia Tershin is the best-selling author of three cookbooks, including the brand spanking new Simply Julia, 110 Easy Recipes for Healthy Comfort Food. I'm Renee Shetler, editor-in-chief of the website Leet's Culinaria. And I'm David Leet, its founder. And this is Talking With My Mouthful a podcast devoted to all things food, the people who make it, and the stories that make the people. Welcome to the show, Julia. Thank you so much for having me. Julia, we got to say you're uniquely yourself, right? Mm -hmm. With most guests, we know exactly what we're going to talk about. A particular recipe, maybe a cooking technique, a new book. But with you, honestly, like we had a really hard time narrowing down what to talk about, just because there's so much. 
Well, let's put it this way. You're a very interesting person and personality with a lot of experiences. <laughs> so it was hard to narrow it down to just the one topic we wanted to talk to you about. Well, you you have come up with much nicer words than just being scattered and all over the place. So I appreciate that very <laughs> we, much. We do try very hard here. <laughs> the euphemistic podcast. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the things I'd like to ask you is I'm always curious about how people see themselves and how they identify. For example, people often think of me as a chef, which is far, far from the truth. I consider myself a writer first, last, and foremost. And I'm curious because you are so varied, as Renee said, and so scattered, as you said, how <laughs> do you see yourself? That's a great question. Um, and I really identify with you about the thing about being called a chef because it's mm. not something I consider myself. And I get called that a lot. And I always kind of look behind my shoulder to see who, <laughs> who they're talking to. Who are you talking to? to? Um, talking to me? Yeah. I mean, I guess first and foremost, I don't know. It's sort of a weirdly hard question. When it comes to the work I do, I consider myself a home cook and a cookbook author. Those are the two things I would say first. But just me mm -hmm. as a person, I mean, I guess I'm... I'm my parents' daughter, I'm my wife's wife, <laughs> I'm my dog's Beautiful. mom, so yeah. So many things. And that can probably be traced back all the way to college where you graduated with a BA in English, with a focus on poetry. Mm -hmm. And you've said along the way numerous times that every recipe you write, you kind of approach as if it were a poem, which I think is incredible. Can you tell us more about that? Sure, sure. I would love to. I appreciate, yeah, you doing your homework on that. Because to go back to David's question of, you know, who am I? How do I identify? I, I guess one way is as a poet who doesn't really write poetry anymore. <laughs> um, but yeah, I did study it in college. And I, I, I say what I just said, because I think if you love poetry, whether you read it or write it, I think it's just you're going through the world paying attention to small details is how I think about mm. it. But yeah, in terms of how I apply that to my recipe writing, I think it has come in really handy. And I don't know if that is just my way of justifying spending a large amount of money on, on studying poetry <laughs> at a liberal arts college. But no, it does come in handy because writing recipes, I think, is something that within the conversations about cookbooks, the recipe writing, I always feel like just doesn't get the credit it deserves and it doesn't get the value it deserves. And it's here, really, here, yeah, and it's like unbelievably technical writing. I mean, you could say it is a little bit like writing a textbook, that part of it, you know, writing those sort of manual mm -hmm. instructions. But I try to take a sort of, yeah, like a poet's approach to it, which means I'm trying to be really, really descriptive with my language. I'm trying to be really clear with my language. And I'm trying to evoke some feeling. I'm trying to let you know what it feels like when the chicken is done, what it might sound like um, or smell like in the kitchen when you're making whatever it is. So I try to be incredibly descriptive just as I do or I did in poetry. It's, it's been a little while since I've written a poem. Actually, not that long. I wrote one recently out of the blue. But I think the other part of it too that's really important is I think with poetry, there is this kind of innate like um, economy of words. Mm -hmm. Like you don't want to go yeah. on and on and on. The same as it is with a cookbook. I try to keep my recipes to one page at the most. I don't want someone to feel like they have to flip a page to keep getting the instructions they need. Um, if it if it needs to happen, it's totally fine. But you know, I try to think of it as uh, just keeping things sort of short and sweet and simple, 
but also incredibly descriptive, which is a lot to do in in a single recipe. So yeah, I, I sort of approach each one as a poem and it makes the... Um, the kind of repetition of writing recipes, it makes it a little bit more mm-hmm. fun for me and it, it feels more creative. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, thank you for asking that. One of the things I really love about your work, and I have this reaction, I had it to Julia Child and I have another <laughs> Julia, and uh, Dory Greenspan and Nigel Slater, is that I feel as if you're in the room with mm. me, you're in the kitchen okay. with me. And I talk about it as kitchen ghosts <laughs> that these people sort of inhabit and haunt in a good way, the kitchen. And I think you accomplish that with what you do in the writing. Well, I appreciate that so much. And I mean, you just named so many people whose whose work has meant so much to me and that I keep very close to me. So that means a lot. And I'm glad that comes through. That really makes me feel like my my goals are achieved. My goal is to make every reader feel like I am with them in their kitchen, that sort of friendly mm-hmm. kind of hand on a shoulder yeah. kind of thing, the kind of like, yeah. you got this, like, it's just dinner. It's not a big deal, but also like we can make this really good and not belittle it. Like this is really special what you're doing. So it's that kind of combo. So yeah, thank you for that. That well, means it is. a lot. It's like having a girlfriend in the kitchen with you. And I think that's accomplished not just through the recipes and your writing of them, but the other writings that you sneak into your cookbooks, <laughs> just these little essays, everything on tips you've learned from being a professional chef or a private chef, if you rather to how to deal with anxiety. Which is not something you see in a cookbook, <laughs> really. How to deal with anxiety. Well, yeah, it was something um, I'm, I'm thrilled to include in Simply Julia. And I've, I've included a lot of writing and all the work I've done. But in this new book, I've gotten to incorporate these short essays, which is a new thing for me. And it was a way to kind of yeah, add this additional layer to the book. In general, I try to pack my books with as much as I can because I really feel like if someone buys a cookbook, they've made an mm-hmm. investment, right? They've paid money for this thing. Mm-hmm. They're probably going to spend time reading or cooking. Um, they're going to spend money on ingredients. You know, I really want my readers to feel like a great return on their investment. I want to give mm-hmm. you everything I possibly can. So within the essays and Simply Julia, I got to express a lot and things that are on my mind a lot and kind of weave them in. So yeah, one is about cooking and anxiety. It's an essay essentially about mental health in a book full of easy recipes. And I think there's room for books to have more than one thing. I love that I was able to do that. And yeah, I'm glad it resonated in some way. Well, and I think it makes you even more like a girlfriend or a great aunt in the kitchen alongside people who are cooking. I think about so much all the different reasons I open cookbooks. Um, And then I think... If I'm opening them, sometimes not really to cook, but just to be relaxed, I'm opening them just to read them. You know, I I grew up loving cookbooks. I work on cookbooks because I've loved them my whole life. And when I was a kid, I couldn't fall asleep unless I paged through a cookbook. It was, you know, like my bedtime story. So, you know, I think about if that's true for me, wow, there must be so many reasons people Mm. go to cookbooks. So, you know, I know that one person can't be everything for everyone and one book can't be everything for everyone. I know that, but I try to kind of include a lot in my books because I know people are coming to them for all different reasons. Well, I've mentioned to Renee just at the beginning of the show that, a cookbook author has to work well for me in bed as well as in the kitchen. Because I really, oh my. But I want to be able to get to know that person and their world and the context 
of their world in their recipes, as well as in the kitchen. And I think that a lot of your work accomplishes that. And I completely understand. I have a big <laughs> stack of cookbooks and I didn't know where they were. My husband had them on his side of the bed underneath the table. And I'm like, where do these cookbooks go? I didn't realize that they were here. So I, I completely understand what you're saying. And then there's something I was deeply, deeply struck by in Simply Juliet. I just want to quote this and I want you to speak about it. You said in the introduction, while I care deeply about giving you trustworthy recipes, pretty photos to show you what they look like and stories to tell you what they really mean to me, what I care most about is who you're cooking for, including you. The tools I'm so happy and grateful to share aren't just for getting a meal prepared, they're also for being a helpful, involved, caring citizen. Talk about that because you don't see that kind of language or intent in a cookbook. Yeah. Thank you for, you know, shining a light on that section because it's it's super important to me. I think home cooks are everyday heroes. I think us home cooks are the helpers of our communities, whether it's the people just within our households or beyond that. And I think when you're a home cook, it's more than just cooking. And that's why I include so much in my cookbooks, because it's not just the recipes. It's how the recipes fit into this greater context. It's how you're managing to put dinner or breakfast and lunch and dinner on the table amidst so many other things. You know, we juggle a lot as home cooks. We also don't have a group of prep cooks preparing things for us or cleaning things up afterwards. We do all of this stuff. And within that, we have the ability to do so much and to organize so much. To be an everyday home cook is to be an unbelievably like thoughtful and organized person. You know, even if you're messy, you're still thinking about, you know, how am I going to use this leftover thing in tonight's dinner? Mm -hmm. What are we going to do tomorrow? Oh, I have to use up that thing in the freezer. You know, that kind of thinking can apply not just in your kitchen, but outside of it. So yeah, I think home cooks have the potential to be so involved in your communities and many of us already are. So I encourage it. Because just like home cooking, being involved in my community is something I practice on a regular basis and it makes me feel very connected. Both those things do and they have so much overlap. So I think it's, it's worth, um, yeah, naming in the introduction of, you know, a kind of general interest mainstream cookbook. I think it's really important. And you've offered ideas as to how home cooks can do that themselves, things that might not have otherwise occurred to them had they not read it in your book. Yeah, I think sometimes because home cooking doesn't get the respect it so deserves, in my opinion, I think sometimes we forget how much we're capable of. You know, we do this really valuable thing where we're feeding ourselves and the people around us. That's very valuable. Mm -hmm. um, and then we can also, yeah, apply that value outside of our kitchens. So maybe it means being involved in your local, you know, soup kitchen or meal delivery program, something like that. Maybe it means if you're already going grocery shopping, maybe you're getting a few extra things and dropping them off at your local food pantry. It could be something like, I live in a very rural area, so our local firefighters and EMT squads are all volunteers. Mm. So I've done things like with my neighbor who used to be the head of the EMT squad for like a few decades. At the beginning of COVID, she was so upset that she was retired. You know, she was no longer on the front lines. She couldn't help people in the way that she has for so long. But she thought about all the people who were on the EMT squad and thought, you know, maybe we can make the meals. We can take that off their list. So I helped her do that. And we were just cooking in our kitchens and dropping things off. And, you know, many people do this kind of work all the time. These things exist in every community. 
And I think just like home cooking, a lot of these people don't get the celebration that I think they very much deserve. And, you know, maybe that's because people, you know, don't require a pat on the back. Right. <laughs> you know, maybe it's just quiet work. Um, but I just, I think it's really important work and it's work that that supports people, you know, whether, yeah, you're cooking for the people in your house or just outside of your home. So these things just have value and merit and provide that unbelievable sense of connection that, you know, food offers. So, Julia, related to that, let's turn to some larger issues that you've also mentioned in your books. For example, the section called Give Back and Do Good. Sure. Yeah. In my in my previous books, in Small Victories and Now and Again, those were sections I included at the back. I didn't do that in Simply Julia because I was talking about those things so much throughout mm-hmm. the course of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But in in both of those sections in those books, you know, it includes ideas, things we've been talking about, like you know, supporting your local food pantry, that type of thing. But also other ideas like throw a party on election day, maybe not during a pandemic, <laughs> or it could be an right. outdoor socially distanced party. But throw a party right. so there's something else to put on the calendar and kind of mark this day. And after everyone's voted, you come over and you have dinner, something like that. So sort of, you know, just kind of like fun, creative ideas about ways we can use cooking, specifically cooking at home, to kind of be mm-hmm. more involved in our communities. And it's also what Feed the Resistance was all about, which was a small book I did in 2017 with contributions from over 20 people in and around food. And it's all ideas and recipes to get involved with your community, to really use home cooking, to get in there, to be that kind of glue between things that happen and to support things that are already happening. You know, it's interesting hearing you speak and also reading your words and also the people on staff who just adore you, you make people, or I should say you make me want to be a better person (laughs) with the tools I have at hand, which is food and cooking. And that is a remarkable thing for a cookbook and a cookbook author to do, if you think about it. Because our society and our culture is all about pretty pictures and good recipes, but a lot of the people for whom we cook for is not included in that. Mm. And there is this sense of be the best you can be in your work. And I think that's what makes it so special. That's why I think so many people are attracted to what you do. I appreciate that. There's a part of me, if I'm being totally honest, that makes me a little nervous hearing that because I think, okay, you know, I'm very weary of ever being put on any pedestal. And I appreciate sure. what you said so much. But I also think, you know, I mess up things all the time. And next to every pretty picture in my book or on Instagram, like there is a mess, like literally and yep. figuratively, right? So, you know, while I so appreciate that that message comes through in my work, that means a lot to me to hear it doesn't come from a place of me knowing any better than anyone else mm-hmm. or doing any better mm-hmm. than anyone else. It, it comes from a lot of inspiration from people who are already doing these things. And my yeah. desire to just be honestly connected, it's the word I keep repeating, but I keep coming back to, I want to feel connected as a person. You know, I want to feel connected to the people I'm cooking to. I want to feel connected to the people I'm getting ingredients from. I want to feel connected to, you know, the people in my community I'm able to serve and I think feeling that sense of connection is what makes me feel like I have like a meaningful life. So I'm always looking for it. And as a cookbook author, I feel like I have this amazing, amazing opportunity to share kind of literal tools for connection, whether it's, you know, a recipe or a list of ideas of ways to get involved, that kind of thing. You know, I think of my job what I do for a living. Maybe this goes back to your first question, like how do you identify? Like identify I yourself. am someone who loves to 
offer tools. Mm. I really enjoy that. And it comes through in a lot of different forms. So, yeah. I've long thought that food intersects our lives in all these different ways, right? And I think what you've done is kind of orchestrate or, you know, kind of quilted together all these ways and presented them to people in a way that seems approachable. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, that means a lot to hear too, because a lot of this type of work can come in a way that feels, um, yeah, not so approachable. So Agreed. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Thank you. And to clarify my statement and what I mean, the idea of the pedestal, not so much putting you on a pedestal, it's actually making the reader, I should say, make me think more about what I can do. Mm. How can I stand up a little bit straighter with what I do with food? So it's almost helping me build a little wee pedestal for myself <laughs> to be a better person with what I do. And, I, as, and I'll repeat, that is an extraordinary thing, I think, for a cookbook to do and a cookbook yeah. author to do. Well, thank you. That's very meaningful to me because I think that whether it's in our actions that we take with the food we make or just even in that sort of ability to be resourceful mm-hmm. in general, like with cooking, you mm-hmm. know, to have that feeling of like, you know, this is why now and again, which is a book I did a couple of years ago, you know, it's all mm-hmm. about reinventing leftovers because that's something I love to do. But it comes from that deep satisfaction that comes from taking something that you feel like doesn't have much left in it and turning it into something great and exciting, I find such satisfaction in that. So I think there's something about that feeling that can happen in so many different ways, whether it's through cooking or, um, yeah, through through these kind of like moments of connection that happen too. So yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Well, it's reassuring to me as a reader to know that you have to come up with ideas for things to do with leftover egg whites <laughs> or crushed tortilla chips too, right? right? Which brings us to your lists, right? I love lists. I'm always scribbling on the back of envelopes. Mm-hmm. And in every, but I suspect you do too, because in every one of your book, you've got all these lists. <laughs> and I'm just kind of curious, what's up with the lists? And what's, what's up, up with, the, with the number? Well, I'll start there. Let's start okay. there. Um, so uh, can I tell you a brief and funny story, which is sure. yeah. <laughs> when, Please. when I was in high school, I feel like this will just tell you everything you need to know about me. When I was in high school one summer, I spent high school in Westchester County, like half an hour outside of Manhattan. And I found that the new school in Manhattan offered a week-long catering course for anyone could sign up for it. So I took it. And on the first day of the course, so Mm -hmm. I was like 16 or something, the youngest person there by far. And I walked into the room and the instructor said, if you love writing lists, you're in the right place. (laughs) And I thought, like, wow, I have found my people. Um, So while I didn't go on to become a caterer, yes, I maintain a love of lists. I think, honestly, you know, you mentioned the essay I wrote about cooking and anxiety. I think it comes from being an anxious person. I think when I write a list, I feel some sense of control, let alone when I cross something off a list. I mean, that's like the best feeling in the world, right? Absolutely. Um, Completely is. So it's, you know, it's how I organize my thoughts and it's how I think through things. So yeah, I offer a lot of lists in all of my books. They're also within those lists, sometimes there are sort of what I think of as more suggestions for recipes rather than Mm -hmm. formal recipes. And again, it comes back to that idea that people go to cookbooks for all different reasons. And I think there's a lot of people who like and enjoy and rely on, you know, formal traditional recipes. And I think Mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who just want to kind of see some different ideas and feel the inspiration from that. So they're like a little bit more casual and let Mm -hmm. me express that kind of feeling. And when I write those lists, the way I go about it is I always think about 
my dad sending me an email saying something like, I have like four leftover <laughs> egg whites because I made this recipe that just used egg yolks. Like, what do I do with them? And the list I put in my book are basically these imagined conversations between me and my dad because we have conversations oh, like that all the time. I mean, I get emails like that from him I all the that. time. So, yeah. My favorite one is seven meaningful conversation prompts. Mm. Now that I think is fascinating. Why did you include that? And give us some prompts that you included. It's so funny to be on this side of the podcast. (laughs) So (laughs) I I have a podcast, which is a total labor of love. And... It is, maybe you relate to this, it's an excuse to just talk to Absolutely. people I want to talk to and ask exactly, questions. It's true. <laughs> so I love hosting my podcast. It's been the greatest excuse to have those conversations. And I spend a lot of time thinking about the questions I'm going to ask and how mm. I'm going to ask them. And maybe you relate to this too. You can do all that and then basically never yeah. look at your piece of paper and you're just yeah. talking, right? But coming up with those questions is something I really, really enjoy doing. I also find myself doing a lot of like moderating of panels and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. I'm often in the position, whether I put myself in it or someone else asks me, I'm often in the position of asking people questions. And, you know, I was thinking about this, especially at the beginning of the pandemic when, you know, I wasn't seeing friends and family as regularly or spending as much time in person, that type of thing. And I find myself on, you know, Zoom call after Zoom call with my loved ones and missing being with them in person, sitting around a kitchen table, making them a meal, you know, doing the thing I love to do. So I started thinking about the types of questions I ask, you know, whether it's on my podcast or a panel and thinking like, I can ask my grandmother these types of questions too. You know, it's a way to get to know people. And I think that the tables we sit around when we have meals are just the most amazing place for meaningful conversations. So yeah, one of the lists at the back of Simply Julia are seven questions (laughs) for meaningful conversation. One is the question I ask every person who comes to my podcast at the end of the show, which is, what was your favorite thing to eat Mm -hmm. when you were growing up? It's just one of my favorite questions because especially when you don't give someone too much time to think about it (laughs) and they can't overthink it, it always comes with a story, right? So questions, you know, have answers, but there's usually stories behind them. And I love hearing people's stories. So yeah, that's where that list comes from. Well, and I love that it connects all your podcasts. You know, you have such varied guests from the woman you volunteer with at one of the Mm -hmm. kitchens, right? To another cookbook author. Like in just the span of two podcasts, you guys talked about volunteering, about ghosts, (laughs) about therapy, right? And I'm like, what? But it was great. And it all tied together. And these are the types of conversations you would have at a dinner table. Yeah. Right. And I love that you just remind people, hey, you know, go a little deeper, you know, think beyond the normal. What did you do today? Yeah. I love hearing you reflect on that to me because it comes so naturally to me, right? Like, of course, I'm going to talk to this person and I'm going to talk to this person. Like, these are people I, you know, love or care about Mm -hmm. or respect. But yeah, it's it's a big, wide range of things. So I guess it gets back to that scattered thing. But yeah. Which is why one, you have lists. Exactly. <laughs> and that one question that kind of ties things together. I'm always mm-hmm. interested in the threads between things, right? Mm-hmm. Especially really. things that seem really disparate. Well, memory is such a big part of that question you ask people. And so I want to ask you that, what are some of the childhood dishes or recipes in your book that you have a special connection to? Mm, yeah, I would say Simply Julia is is many things, but one of them is it's absolutely like the most personal book 
I've ever written. And so many of the recipes are tied to those early childhood memories. I mean, one of them, probably the most complicated recipe in a book full of incredibly simple and easy <laughs> recipes. And it's the recipe for stuffed cabbage. And it's mm-hmm. it's just, it's one of my favorites because mm-hmm. it takes me right back to my childhood. And so I grew up, I'm the child of two Jewish New Yorkers. I'm yeah, the granddaughter of immigrants. And on my dad's side, I had the great blessing, I would say, of knowing my great-grandmother for the first few years of my life. And she lived in North Miami Beach, and there was an unbelievable restaurant called The Rascal House mm-hmm. in Florida that it's no longer there, but you can look up pictures of it online. I mean, it looks like a movie set. It was like this hysterical place. And as a kid, it was it felt like going to like a carnival or something. It was big and loud and colorful. And my family would always go there when we visited my great-grandmother and someone at the table, usually my dad, would always order the stuffed cabbage. And I like loved it. And it was like the super old school kind of peasant food dish, you know, and it came from essentially the places my grandparents came from. It came from Eastern Europe. But then that dish, you know, made its way to America and it made its way probably through places like New York where immigrants and refugees came through. You know, my parents came through Ellis Island and that dish found its way to Florida to all the retired Jewish New Yorkers. And, you know, I got to eat it as this little kid and hear the sounds of all the families in the booths and, you know, like just the clinking of the um, bowls of pickles and coleslaw that come on the table. You know, it's such an evocative Mm -hmm. memory for me. So yeah, that's one that really stands out. And there's a story behind your Tex-Mex meatballs also, which sound incredible. (laughs) Which sound fantastic. (laughs) Can you talk about that? Of course, I can happily talk about it. So yeah, when I was growing up, both my parents worked full time. So the weekends were really the time when we as a family, I have an older brother, would eat together. And my dad did most of the weekend cooking. And one of his favorite things to make, his, his name is Doug. And it came to be known as Doug's famous Tex-Mex meatloaf. It was famous amongst four people, my parents, <laughs> was, my brother and I. It was still famous. But it was a quorum. <laughs> yeah. It was a quorum. And Exactly. And it was really, when I think about it, it's like my favorite kind of cooking. It's this kind of resourceful, slightly clever type of cooking. And so my dad would get probably just meatloaf mix from, you know, the grocery store, the butcher, you know, pork and beef mm-hmm. and veal. I use turkey in the book because that's what my wife likes. And instead of beaten eggs and breadcrumbs, you know, the things we usually put to bind meatloaf, my dad would put a jar of salsa and then he would crush a bag of tortilla chips. And then he would fill the whole thing with so much grated cheddar cheese and put more on top. And we like, mm-hmm. loved it. It was so good. And the best part was Sunday when we would have cold meatloaf sandwiches for lunch. Um, So the meatballs are just a pretty straightforward version of the meatloaf. I turn them into meatballs mostly because I'm just really impatient and they take (laughs) a lot less time to cook. Yeah, and you don't have to slice them or anything. So yeah, that was the reasoning there. Right. Julie, you were talking earlier about sharing food with others, but it's sharing so much more Mm. than Mm -hmm. just food. It's the vehicle, yeah. And you kind of refer to doing the same thing with ourselves a lot throughout everything I've read from you, you talk about being present, right? And really in the moment at hand, which I have my ideas about with cooking. I'm sure we all do. But can you talk to us a little bit about why you think that's important and maybe just the little ways people can start? Sure. I feel like so much of what we're talking about, maybe it's because I just came out of a therapy session, (laughs) Um, but so much of what we're talking about, I think comes back 
Honestly, to my life as a person who lives with a lot of anxiety, some of it inherited and some of it just completely made on my own. And I'm always looking for tools to handle that and to go through life less anxious and just more calm and more connected and ultimately more present. I find that when I'm present, when I'm fully within the moment, and it doesn't have to be happy or joyful. I mean, it's great when it is. Sure. But when I'm present, I'm not anxious. When I'm anxious, I'm worried about something. So I'm Mm -hmm. thinking about something that's going to happen or I'm thinking about something that maybe just happened and I'm, you know, replaying it or something. So sometimes I feel like when I try to not be anxious, that puts a lot of pressure on myself. But when I just try to be present, I find I can do it more easily. And all of a sudden I get the thing I so desire, which is just to feel calm and here and now. So cooking has been one of the most tremendous tools for me to accomplish this. When I'm cooking, especially if I'm making more than one thing at a time, which I know can cause anxiety for a lot of people. But for me, it means I'm paying attention to, you know, what's bubbling on the stove. I'm paying attention to what I'm slicing. You know, I have to be completely present. And when I'm eating, whether it's by myself or for me, preferably with other people, because I really enjoy that, you know, my goal is always to feel super present. It's to sit at the table and not be on my phone at the same time, that kind of thing. So I feel like cooking and eating, which, you know, most of us are lucky to do every day, it offers me these opportunities one after the other to be present. And so if I can be present for my meals and cooking them, I'm present for most of the day, right? And so that makes a really nice day. So, yeah. And that might start to leak out into other areas of your life as exactly. well. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I agree because this weekend I was making financier and I was I had was making mm. pistachio ones and I had all the ingredients and I love to bake and I started getting so anxious because the batter was a different consistency than I remember, and I haven't made them in years and years, and the molds weren't exactly right. I actually stopped. I put everything down halfway through, (laughs) and I said, what are you doing? Why are you rushing this? Why are you getting anxious? Why are you criticizing yourself? This is supposed to bring you joy. It's Mm -hmm. not supposed to make you more tense. And when I let go and I just stayed in the moment and said, it is what it's going to be. Let's just focus and have a good time. They ended up being okay. They weren't the greatest ones I've ever made, but I certainly had a much better time. And it was, and that to me is something that I sometimes forget that being in the kitchen, because we're all in this as a business, being in the kitchen is supposed to be something that's enjoyable, not always has a deadline attached to it. Yeah. And so being present, I think, is terribly important. Or for the home cook to have a sense of accomplishment and expectation Mm -hmm. because so much of them gets Mm -hmm. put on the line. Right. And they feel like it's this big test, I feel. Absolutely. I, I agree with both of you so much. And I, I feel that feeling that you're describing often. And and David, it's 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 so great that you had that moment to mm-hmm. kind of talk to yourself and remind yourself, you know, that's that's big, you know, because that could have been a totally different experience. And that said, I also know that for some people, the idea of cooking feels so stressful, right? Yeah. <laughs> like it's the thing that's going to make them feel anxious or worried or whatever. So I know it doesn't provide this for everyone, but I think being connected to food in some way, it doesn't have to be cooking. It could be the pleasure of picking out, you know, vegetables mm-hmm. or fruit at, you know, whether it's the farmer's market or the grocery store or online, <laughs> you know, choosing things as many people are right now. It could be, you know, the satisfaction of, having like a, you know, something you love to drink, whether it's, you know, wine or 
I don't know, fresh milk, whatever you want. <laughs> like whatever does it for you. Like that feeling of just feeling connected and present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, it comes through cooking, but I know that's not the case for everyone. So I, I think it's always just good to remember food offers like a lot of ways into that feeling. Well, Julia, this has been wonderful speaking to you. As a matter of fact, I think we've been so present. There's so many questions we haven't asked you. So <laughs> would you come back on the show again? I would love to. I've loved speaking with both of you. That went by incredibly quickly. Um, And I just want to say, since we're talking about sort of asking questions and all this stuff, I just, I appreciate the thought you put into your questions and how much you have read and everything. It, It means a lot. So yeah, please, anytime. I would love to keep talking about all these things. These are my favorite things to talk about. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Julia Tertian is a New York Times bestselling author of three cookbooks, including Now and Again and Small Victories, and has been a contributor to 12 more. Her latest book, Simply Julia, 110 Easy Recipes for Healthy Comfort Food, just hit bookshelves, so get yourself a copy pronto. And you can find Julia on Instagram and Twitter at Tertian, or you can go to her website at juliatertian.com. Renee, it's interesting because we talked all about food and memory and growing up. And the one mm-hmm. question I forgot to ask her was what was her favorite food growing up? So I'm going to ask you, what was your favorite <laughs> food growing up? Oh boy, there were lots. If I had to name just one. Mm-hmm. Then just one. It would have to be my mom's potato chip crusted drumsticks. It was made when we couldn't make it to the store, usually during a blizzard or something. Right. She would take the crumbs at the bottom of the bag of potato chips. Get she would no. take, Yeah, chicken drumsticks out of the freezer, right? Uh-huh. Roll them in melted butter. Actually, I think she probably used melted oleo, as she called it back then. Oleo. <laughs> Margarine, right? Uh-huh. And... She slid them on her rim baking sheet that, you know, the one that's like all dented and scratched Mm -hmm. and has like Mm -hmm. blackened stuff from the last decade burnt on places. And she'd bake them until they were crisp and the butter would be bubbling. And the potato chips that were in contact with the sheet pan would be burnt to a crisp. But everywhere else, they were almost winking at me, you know, with the little bubbles of butter. Oh, wow. It was a lot better than the casseroles we had almost every other night. (laughs) What about you? Favorite food? If I had to pick just one dish for my childhood, I would say it was my mother's Portuguese beans. And I use the term loosely because my mother is Portuguese, was raised in America though, but her family and everyone else was from the Azores. So she kind of combined franken beans with Portuguese flavors. So it Mm. was navy beans with paprika and onions and garlic and some tomato paste. And it was thick and it was very savory. And it had bacon in it, which that's fine. That all works. But then she had hot dogs. (laughs) <laughs> she had just plain old hot dogs in there. Oh my gosh. And she'd put a whole pack of eight hot dogs in there. But the thing I remember most is she served them in those steam trays that went out like caterers would have. Yeah. She just would get them at the supermarket where she worked. She worked at Fernandi's supermarket. And that's what she made them in. And that was a Sunday dinner often. And one of my favorites. And I would eat them cold too. I just loved them. Hmm. Do you ever make them? Do I ever make them? Yeah, they're actually in my cookbook too. My version, there's no hot dogs. It's okay. In my that's cookbook, why I didn't recognize it. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, they're there and they're really wonderful. Ah, memories about food. This podcast is produced by Overt Studios, and our producer is the always present Adam Claremont. 
You can reach Adam and Overt Studios at overtstudios.com. And remember to subscribe to Talking With My Mouthful wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear and want to support us, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to leave Renee and me a recorded question or compliment, because we'd love compliments, visit our podcast page at leit.es forward slash chat. Press and talk away and maybe you'll be featured on the show. Ciao. Ciao.